Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting August 28, 2015, we talk with reporter Ted Anderson about controversy over threats to the environment from a Nicaraguan version of the Panama Canal. His essay for the new WPJ Climate's Cliff Summer issue is headlined, Nicaragua's Big Dig. We'll also point out other top stories in the new summer issue. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, there are growing calls here in Washington for President Obama to cancel next month's visit by China's President Xi Jinping, cyber attacks, militarization of the South China Sea, human rights violations, and the devaluation of China's currency, the yuan, are enough to convince some conservatives that China is increasingly undermining American interests. Among those critics is at least one presidential candidate, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. The White House, while acknowledging those issues, says the best way to deal with China is by engaging it as has every president since Richard Nixon. The White House is also edging closer to having enough Senate support for the nuclear deal with Iran. Of course, Congress cannot shoot down the deal per se, but it can pass other legislation disapproving of it, an embarrassment to the president. Obama has said he would veto any such bill, and that's where having enough support in Congress comes in. Republicans say the Iran deal reflects Obama's foreign policy weakness. The White House counters that the only alternative to the deal it and five other global powers made with Tehran is war. And just announced Saudi King Salman will visit Washington early next month. It would be his first official visit to the U.S. as Saudi Arabia's leader. Salman and Obama, of course, have had deep disagreements over the Iran deal. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. And they promised to employ one million people. This quantity was reduced very abruptly to 30,000 Nicaraguan and 30,000 Chinese that were come to the country to work together. Well, I think that uh, it is a nonsense. It is something that is not in, in the realm of... Former Nicaraguan Vice President Sergio Ramirez on Radio Free Asia this spring was dubious about a mysterious Chinese billionaire's slow-starting, worrisomely vague, and financially dubious plan to build the world's biggest canal, biggest construction project of any sort, actually, through some of his nation's most fragile environments, including Lake Nicaragua, Central America's largest. Opponents have taken to the streets over likely consequences should the $40 billion plan, backed by President Daniel Ortega, the former Sandinista rebel leader, actually succeed. Beyond the disturbances of cross-country construction on animals, fish, vegetation, and the native population, there are risks from operation of such a canal, from potential oil spills, from the demands on natural resources by planned resorts, transportation operations, and related development, not to mention from ongoing volcanic activity in the region. 
Reporter Ted Anderson, now with the Associated Press in Thailand, wrote about the controversy for the World Policy Journal's Climates Cliff Summer Issue, and I talked about it with him recently for this podcast. Ted Anderson, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank you. Great to be here. The idea of a Nicaragua canal between Atlantic and Pacific waters is hardly new. In fact, Nicaraguan national hero Augusto Cesar Sandino himself backed the idea. Talk about that. Yeah, so uh, Sandino, he's uh, known as the greatest hero in Nicaragua, and he obviously later gave his name to the Sandinista Party. He wrote a, a manifesto in 1927, um, and he basically said that Civilization would require the canal um, in order to to progress, and that capital would be needed from the entire world, and not exclusively the United States. He actually called the United States out on it. Um, he mentioned that taxes would be needed um, and to be redistributed to the people um, in order for the income to really be uh, enough to help lift people in all parts of the, the society and create an effective democracy. Um, of course, he was assassinated in 1934, and then came 40 years after that of conservative rule by the right-wing Somoza family. So um, this dream he never saw out, obviously. You write that the United States initially bought rights to build a Nicaraguan canal, but used them to block any construction there when Congress was persuaded to back the Panama Canal. How did the rights become available again, and who is this Hong Kong-based billionaire holding them now? Okay, that's a really good question. Um, so the United States, uh, if we go back to 1914, uh, they bought exclusive rights uh, through a treaty. Uh, it was actually uh, called the um, Brian Chamorro Treaty. It's only $3 million, which back then was a lot, but by today's standards, it's really nothing when you consider the cost of the $40 billion canal that's uh, now in the hands of uh, Wang Jin, who's a telecommunications uh, bearing from mobile from um, Hong Kong. Um, as far as getting the uh, the rights back uh, in 1970, the United States and Nicaragua held a convention um, that officially abolished the treaty and all its provisions. So uh, that gave um, the Nicaraguan government the opportunity to negotiate with whoever they wanted. Now they are negotiating with a private company, uh, HKMD, um, Hong Kong Nicaraguan Development Company, uh, Nicaraguan Canal Development Company. Um, so it's actually not the government of China directly per se, but a private enterprise company. Talk about the near total control uh, this uh, Hong Kong-based billionaire got for much more than a waterway, all that related development, and what he promised Nicaragua in return. So, I mean, what he got was, and what his company got was a 50-year concession um, with an option for 50 more years. So that's basically, we're talking about an entire century. Um, which is kind of interesting because back in the Treaty of Brian and Chamorro with the United States, the United States also had a renewable 99-year option, so it's kind of you know, echoing that um, you know, time in history. In the case of Nicaragua, HK and D gets the rights to operate the canal, and they take the entire revenue from operating it. Um, and in exchange, the Nicaraguan government only receives $10 million per year for the first decade. So that's you know, basically a million a year. Um, and with an increasing share after that, you know, along with the 1% stake in the canal every year. So after about 51 years, you know, like, if this deal would continue so, so long, 
the Nicaraguan government would theoretically become a major uh, majority stakeholder. And what about all of the related development that's planned alongside with and, and related to the canal? Um, well, there, you know, we also have, uh, you know, an airport, um, you know, you have, um, you know, the dams that are planned, you have, um, a whole rail network that's, that's planned. You have tourism, um, two tourism centers that are planned, um, that are, uh, China's had their eye on for some time, one in the UNESCO, uh, heritage site on Watepe Island. Um, so we're talking about more than just a canal. We're talking about a whole infrastructure that's going to be built up around it, much of it with uh, European and Chinese companies to do the work. Many presume uh, that this billionaire has ties to leaders in Beijing. Does this deal indicate any kind of trajectory of Chinese plans for Latin America? Yeah, well, um, you know, as far as the ties directly, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Um, you know, it's only speculation, so I can't say. But as far as the trajectory, um, you know, there is sort of a Sino-Latino um, policy of investment that points to that. Um, there was a, a large summit in Beijing um, on January 8th with a number of uh, Latin American nations, and um, Chinese President um, Xi Jinping um, mentioned the strengthening ties of the region and pledged you know, billions of dollars in support in loans and other projects. Um, so we're talking about trade between uh, the countries going from $10 billion in 2000 to $257 billion in 2013. I mean, it's just an astronomical increase. Um, it's also kind of happening at the same time where John Kerry, Secretary of State John Kerry, has declared the Monroe Doctrine, um, which, of course, you know, the U.S. Uh, as the overlord of uh, all foreign relations in the Western Hemisphere as being dead. Um, and this type of investment definitely shows that the uh, Far East uh, has its eyes on uh, the Western Hemisphere, especially Latin America. You note that the U.S. Congress favored a Panama Canal after its financial backers planted a false story about volcanic activity in Nicaragua uh, not long after which there was an actual eruption there. What is volcanic activity in the area like now? Well, there was a, an, a, um, an eruption from um, Concepcion, I think it was back in, you know, in the 2000s, and uh, there are 19 volcanoes that are, uh, many of them are still active right now. Um, so you're talking about a situation where you have dormant volcanoes that have erupted, you know, about a century back, um, ones that have erupted less than, you know, 15 years ago. Um, it's a volatile place, um, you know. I mean, there's there's layers and layers of volcanic ash at the bottom of Lake Nicaragua um, that kind of points to the history of eruptions throughout, you know, thousands of years, um, you know, up to a few hundred years and decades ago. So, um, and, and it's anyone's guess. I mean, when's the next big one coming in San Francisco? You know, we just uh, we hold our breath, so it's it's hard to say exactly when it's going to happen. So let's talk about some things we do know. How long long would the canal be? How much land and lake would have to be cleared for its construction and operation? Okay. Well, if we talk about the land, it's basically like Manhattan to the you know, 50th floor or so. We're talking big, really big. Um, you know, there's, there's more cubic land um, that's going to be dredged than any other project in modern history. As far as the dredging of the lake, 
Uh, the lake is only about 40 feet deep and average, which is not very deep for super container ships to be coming through. So the project would require the removal of more than 60 miles of lake bed sediment. Um, and this is sediment that contains you know, heavy metals, pesticides, grease. It's more than 21 billion cubic feet of dredged sediment that's going to come out. So between the, the land and the, you know, the 176 billion cubic feet of land, about 4,700 Empire State buildings, and then the dredging of the lake, I mean, we're talking a very, very large amount of land that needs to be moved. Minor construction began even before Wang Jing's company hired a London-based firm to make the normally required environmental impact study. What do outside experts say about the likely threats to animal habitats on the land to be transformed? Well, a lot of NGOs have voiced opposition to the project on that basis. Um, there's the Humboldt Center, uh, which is uh, Nicaraguan-based. Um, there is Force of the World, which is based in Denmark, and they claim that the canal threatens more than you know, a dozen endangered species, talking like jaguars, you know, monkeys, spider monkeys, tapirs, macaws, um, very, very sensitive um, species of sea turtles, um, as well as frogs. Um, we're talking uh, the type of you know, um, you know, protection that um, a lot of these species desperately need, but um, you know, it's, it's going to affect uh, the, their livelihood based on the fact that the route goes directly through uh, a lot of protected jungle. The plans call for what you call echo bridges, so wildlife can continue to traverse areas through which the canal passes. What would they look like, and how do experts rate that idea? Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's really to compound the disruption caused by this, you know, initial con um, construction. The canal is going to to be fenced off on both sides, so it's going to create a barrier for the species to migrate, you know, up and down through this, this Central American corridor. Um, and the eco bridges, um, environmentalists say, it's not enough to basically allow the animals to move through this fenced off area. Um, I. I <laughs> It was explained to me as, have you ever seen, um, you know, uh, you know, a deer, like for example, can, can you be sure that a deer is going to make its way uh, crossing the road before they actually dart across the road? Um, you know, it's 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 not unlike deer crossings as far as having these narrow areas where um, animals are supposed to go. And of course, some of these animals hunt each other too. So I mean, I don't know how that's going to work. Uh, environmentalists, nonetheless, don't think it's enough for the free movement of animals in their natural habitats. In Lake Nicaragua, a major source of the country's drinking water, you say dredging a channel for super ships too big even for the expanded Panama Canal could raise enough sediment uh, of which you spoke to make a dead zone. Talk about that. Yeah, that's that's uh, definitely something that experts down there have talked about, water experts. Um, so this dead zone could occur if um, high levels of um, particles get suspended in the water uh, during the dredging process. Um, and something called eutrophication yeah, occurs where you have this overly rich water that causes dense plant life to start growing, and then that sucks all the oxygen out of the water. And then what you get as a result is um, giant fish kills. Um, so between the lack of oxygen in the water and the um, highly toxic particles in the water, um, some scientists have predicted that you know, we could have what, what they call dead zones.
And there could be a similar threat from all the dredged material to be piled up in holding areas nearby if they're struck by Nicaragua's seasonal hurricanes. Yeah, that's right. So Nicaragua is prone to seasonal hurricanes. Um, and, you know, with climate change, it's uh, scientists predict that these hurricanes are going to only get more intense as surface levels, uh, temperatures rise in the ocean. So a storm like Hurricane Mitch, for example, that killed 3,800 people in 1998 would likely flood the canal, cause mudslides, could breach the, the locks and, and the dams, totally overwhelm the new infrastructure. Um, and, you know, these, these storms could also degrade Lake Nicaragua's water quality by mixing the piles of dredged sediment back into the water again. Um, what they have is they have these confined disposal facilities. They call them CDFs, uh, which are basically forming islands in this freshwater body, which is also the um, main source of drinking water for the people in Nicaragua. Um, so if we're talking about a Category 5 superstorm rolling through one of these confined disposal facilities, it's hard to say how confined it really could be, and um, the experts agree with me on that one. Would the canal somehow be walled off from the rest of Lake Nicaragua to protect against leaks, spills, infestations from organisms that are generally carried by passing ships? Um, a big threat is the... Uh, so the um, introduction of invasive species through um, boats that are coming through, there's not going to be anything walled off as far as um, boats that uh, come through the, the locks um, are raised to the level of the lake and then go through the lake. Um, there will be sort of channels that um, the, the boats will have to go through because the dredging is not going to be, um, you know, throughout the entire lake. It's a very large lake. Um, but when we talk about walls and separating um, the, the water completely, you know, that's just something that's not going to be done uh, unless, you know, plans change and they've already done an environmental impact report. So um, that would probably take some, uh, some major changes. So, yeah, this, this idea of mixing of salt water, the, the idea of carrying uh, invasive species from the ocean into the lake, um, this is something that uh, people are worried about. You also say that operation of the locks at either end will let in salt water and use fresh water to flush them out, uh, uh, another serious loss for consumption, farming, uh, industrial use, given increasing drought conditions in Nicaragua. Yeah, they, they did face a very large drought um, last year. And the, the situation is that... Um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers did a study on salinity on the Panama um, Miraflores Lake, which was an artificial lake that was created when they made the Panama Canal. Um, and the Panama Canal um, is also a good, you know, a model to look at the Nicaraguan Canal as far as uh, some of the challenges in engineering that, that they'll need to overcome um, if they are to do it in a way that minimizes environmental degradation. Um, but you know, when we talk about the mixing of, of the waters, the study did find that salt accumulations were noticed in the power station pipes, um, the fresh water from Miraflores and Gatun Lake, which is another artificial lake in um, Panama. Um, both uh, had um, salt water uh, in them um, because of the mixing of water when the locks open and the ships uh, sail out into the lake. Um, so there is also this net loss of fresh water because the fresh water um, is used to um, 
flush the locks and to minimize this mixing of water. So uh, if that is the solution to keeping salinity levels down in the source of the larger source of drinking water in Nicaragua, you know, to flush the locks with fresh water, then we're taking fresh water during a drought condition and we're sending it out to sea over and over and over again as you have these ships coming through every day. So yeah, we're talking about a loss of a lot of water. There's also concern about a new Atlantic reservoir to make much of the hydroelectric power needed for the project. Explain that. Yeah, so this is a 152-square-mile reservoir um, that would be needed to provide power for the canal's locks. Um, and it, whether it would be enough power, you know, or, you know, it, it, that the jury's still out on that, but... Um, the, the, the reservoir would would definitely uh, would have about you know, billions of cubic feet of water, um, and um, it's designed to become a future hub of tourism um, because they would need water resources uh, in the eastern part of the country. Um, it would be designed for using fresh water to flush out the locks, like I mentioned before. Um, so, I mean, this is kind of like Miraflores and Gatun Lakes in, um, in the Panama Canal as far as an artificial reservoir that's created uh, in order to, um, to sustain the electricity and also the uh, fresh water needed um, you know, for, the, for the project. Um, but it's very energy intensive, um, and if salt water does intrude into Lake Nicaragua, um, and also into uh, this reservoir, they might have to consider in Nicaragua the idea of desalination, um, which has also been mentioned before by some experts. And this is an expensive energy-intensive solution. So I don't know if HKND has thought about that, but I haven't seen that factored into their, their plans. Despite the appearance of Sandinista leader Ortega realizing the dream of Sandina himself, you say there are doubts about the financial returns for Nicaragua and how fairly any will be shared. Yeah, um, some of the people I talked to in Nicaragua have expressed some doubts. Um, I'm, I'm not from Nicaragua, um, you know, so I can only look at history, look at the, sort of the political climate um, and the history of, of Ortega himself, talk to people in the country about it, um, get their opinion. But it does. there is a lot of skepticism um, about how much of this money is going to to be, you know, equitably returned to the people and reinvested into the country um, versus just completely disappearing. Uh, when Ortega lost um, an election, a big election um, several decades ago to the uh, widow of a newspaper editor who was assassinated in uh, Nicaragua. One of the last things he did is take all of the money, as much money as he could, out of the government. They called the situation La Pinata, almost like hitting a government and taking all the money out. So there's been a lot of fair criticism based on a track record that Mr. Ortega may not follow through with this idea of equitably returning and reinvesting this money from China, Chinese company, uh, back to the Nicaraguan people. Is this company going to pay farmers and, and residents for, for personal land, private land that they seize for the project? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's that's part of the plan. Um, I was told, though, that the situation is a little bit intimidating um, as far as having Chinese um, 
engineers showing up at houses of some farmers with um, a whole group, you know, cadre of um, Nicaraguan military who's basically protecting, you know, the surveyors who are taking measurements and deciding, you know, whose property they need, you know, with, to seize with this eminent domain to, to um, you know, move the project, you know, to its lot, you know, the course that they've decided on. So they are going to pay them. Um, some people don't want the money, though, and so they're just going to have to take the money and they're going to be forcibly removed. I don't know if that's how that's going to look in some situations, whether it's going to be, you know, violent or if it's going to happen in a way where people, you know, just kind of accept the inevitable that they're going to lose their land. Um, but, yeah, they will be getting money for it. Could the slow start and the scaling back of jobs that we heard about in the sound clip at the top indicate that this project may be suffering from the larger economic slowdown in China, maybe to be abandoned at Beijing's behest? And what would happen then? That's a great question. You know, I don't know if anybody really knows the answer to that. I mean, I can speculate that, um, you know, you might be left with a couple things. One, if this company does not is not able to raise enough private capital to complete the project, you'll have two things. You'll have one, a giant hole in the ground, depending on how much work they've done, or you know maybe just um, you know slight construction because they haven't done too much yet and mostly doing planning stages. Um, so you might be just left with a bunch of paperwork. But if you are left with a giant hole in the ground that's not complete, um, I think that Beijing would have a, a golden opportunity. Um, to use the um, the Chinese Development Bank as uh, a tool to move the completion of the canal forward, because for them this is a sort of a geostrategic um, you know coup, and it's a boon for them to, in order to to be able to have a hundred years, you know if. Beijing actually did have control, you know, through the state as opposed to a private company. A hundred years of control of a, a shipping road straight to Europe, um, and that's what it would be. Um, so, uh, if this company falls through, and I see it as a golden opportunity for Beijing to step in and finish the job uh, and have control of that route uh, and the largest um, uh, ports in the world um, between Asia and Europe. What steps do you suggest to assure that if the project does continue, either under private or Beijing auspices, it does as little harm as possible? Well, um, I mean, I, I think that uh, UNESCO input uh, into the report um, would, would be necessary. Um, I know... ERM, Environmental Resources Management, which is a large um, uh, uh, sort of environmental management company that does in, impact statements. Um, they were in charge of the environmental and social impact report. They just put it out, um, I think, in, in June, very early in June. It was like 27,000 pages. Um, I think that it needs to be thoroughly looked over. We need to have a lot of meetings internationally um, as this is going to affect the ecosystem for more than just um, one country. Uh, we're talking about a lot of um, offshore space as well. We're talking also about UNESCO um, heritage sites. Um, so I think the UN input um, and scientists' uh, input should be considered. I also think that they 
they need to sit down with the scientists in Nicaragua more. Um, from what I've been told by them, that they've been a little bit uh, kept on the sidelines when it comes to um, the scientific input from the universities down there, from the water experts, from the animal experts, uh, who know their land better than um, experts in Europe or the United States or Asia do. Um, so I, I think that more input is needed from them also. Um, I think they need to craft a, a sophisticated disaster relief plan. So, for example, if a sudden oil spill were to occur, the Nicaraguan army would be completely unprepared right now, probably not have enough resources or training to, to be able to deal with that kind of, um, you know, mitigation of that kind of thing. So maybe HK and D's canal profits should be taxed to create a national disaster recovery account. Um, that would be something that would at least have, you know, some sort of, you know, measure, measurable sense of security when it comes to the environment. Um, yeah, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things that could be done. Um, obviously, uh, construction, halting all the construction before the environmental impact statement is, is, is completely analyzed. It has been released, but um, I still think that um, a lot of uh, experts still have some problems with the details, some of them which I've discussed in this podcast. Ted Anderson, thank you. Thank you. Reporter Ted Anderson, now with the Associated Press in Thailand, wrote about the controversy over Nicaragua's big dig for the world policy journal Climate's Cliff Summer Issue. Also featured in the summer 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on developing solar, wind, and nuclear power, about China's smothering skies, and about answers from six continents to the issue's big question, who has the most to lose from climate change in your country? Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we look further into the WPGA Climate's Cliff Summer Issue. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Publisher David Andelman, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Online News Editor and Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.